National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, November 3rd, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. I've been giving a great deal of thought to the topic of climate change this year. It's an issue that is finally getting the kind of coverage it should have received decades ago when we could have taken concerted action to mitigate this challenge more easily and for far less money. This show is about national security. Today we're going to tie American national security implications to our changing climate. We have with us two people who are experts on the nexus of climate change and national security. Major General Rick Devereaux graduated from the United States Air Force Academy in 1978 and spent 34 years on active duty in the U.S. Air Force. He, is, he was a command pilot, logging over 3,000 hours in the C-5 Galaxy, the KC-135 Stratotanker, and several other aircraft. During his career, he held a variety of positions, including command of a flying squadron, two Air Force wings, the Air Force Expeditionary Center, and an Air Force group that deployed teams to multiple locations in the Middle East and Afghanistan after 9-11. He was also the director of the Air Force Training Operations, and he completed four Pentagon assignments, including his final position as director of Air Force Operational Planning, Policy, and Strategy. After retiring from the Air Force in 2012, General Devereaux served as a consultant for various think tanks, defense firms, and an energy technology company. General Devereaux serves on the advisory group for the Center of Climate and Security, as a climate security consultant for the American Security Project, and as a member of Citizens Climate Lobby, and he and his wife live in Asheville, North Carolina. Our other guest today is Bruce Moreland, who should be familiar to you if you listen to the climate show here on KYMN Radio over the last four years. Bruce Moreland is a twice-retired mathematician. In his first tour of duty in the U.S. Air Force, he started as a line crew launch officer in the Minuteman Missile Force. From there, he moved on to perform analyses of ballistic missiles as a ballistics engineer, including analyzing Soviet submarine-launched ballistic missiles, as well as Titan, Minuteman, and Peacekeeper missiles. As the chief scientist for the Director of Intelligence at Headquarters Strategic Air Command, he helped staff and leadership understand the complexities of nuclear war and nuclear effects, including nuclear winter. He then went on to teach at the Air Force Institute of Technology and Operations Research, Strategic and Tactical Sciences, and Graduate Space Operations, where his graduate students conducted research in operations, space, and deterrence. Since retiring from both the Air Force and the Mayo Clinic, he has focused on public policy and decision-making. Specifically, he uses his expertise in decision-making processes and serves as a volunteer with the Citizens Climate Lobby as chair of the Conservative Caucus. Major General Rick Devereaux, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be with uh, you, John, and Bruce as well. And, and you are in uh, at home in Asheville, North Carolina this morning, sir? I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. We're about uh, 10 degrees warmer than you are in Minnesota. <laughs> uh, and we proudly wear the label of Climate City USA, and I'll, I can talk about that a little later. <laughs> All right. And Bruce Moreland, welcome back to the show. We had you on with us in, in late January when we had our first show on nuclear deterrence and nuclear weapons. Yes, thank you for uh, having me here. It's going to be fun. So, gentlemen, we have a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, I'd like to start with the basics and work our way into the critical elements of this uh, this nexus of climate change and national security. 
And I, I tend to like to start this show by talking about our guests' uh, backgrounds a little bit, uh, especially in this introduction to this climate change topic. Uh, so for me, I'll just share a little bit. When I was a young U.S. Navy intelligence officer in the early 1990s, uh, I, I can recall reading intelligence analysis that discussing this thing called climate change. And, and I'll be honest, I didn't pay too much attention to the issue back then. I was busy enough just trying to learn my trade as an intelligence officer and working to understand the world so I could better serve the, the Navy and our nation. Let me, let me ask the two of you, uh, when was it that you first started hearing about climate change? And since all three of us are, are retired military officers, perhaps you could tell us in what context you heard about climate change as it relates to national security. And, and Bruce, let's, let's start with you. Okay. Well, the first exposure I had to this issue was probably back when I was working at uh, SAC and the concept of nuclear winter came in. And what had been happening is these people had been developing these global weather models or actually climate models. And somebody threw up the question, what happens in a nuclear war? And so they ran the numbers and it was just absolutely shocking. So I spent a lot of time running around explaining the implications for deterrence uh, if you have an asymmetric understanding of what happens during a nuclear war. And I, I was, it was kind of an interesting time to be doing that. So coming a little bit later then, in 2014, when I was reintroduced to the issue, I already had an understanding of the models that were being used, so it was a pretty easy thing for me to believe what I was being told and start to see the, the concerns that global warming uh, were going to give us. And then by... The time I went to a, there was a, an event in 2015 that was kind of a watershed. I went to Peace Stock 2015, and it was a peace conference, and I had to tell the people there that the unfortunate fact was if they didn't solve climate change, they would never have peace because they would have hundreds of millions of climate refugees. And this is back in, before climate refugees really became a thing to talk about. But we'll, you'll hear a lot more about that on the show. So that's kind of my trajectory to... And, of course, as a mathematician, I'm constantly explaining. I have a story about that I'll tell, too. And General Devereaux, how about you, sir? Yeah, I mean, I, I can think of a lot of little anecdotes uh, in my pa past. Uh, I guess the first time I ever thought about climate was as a second lieutenant in the Air Force uh, in, in the aftermath of the failed Iranian hostage rescue mm. attempt. Remember during the, the last year of the Carter administration, mm -hmm. part of our failure there was we didn't. We did not have good climate data on Iran, and we when we sent helicopters in for that rescue, we didn't know about uh, the dust storms that were frequent in that uh, part of the world. Uh, you know, and then as later on, as a, a airlift pilot flying all over the world, um, thinking that many of our missions would re be related to perhaps combat support or supporting our troops abroad. Uh, but instead, many of our missions were related to humanitarian response, disaster relief, often climate-induced, you know, weather-related events. I, I think when I was a more senior officer uh, back in, I think it was 2006, is uh, I took command of a base in Wichita Falls, Texas, Shepard Air Force Base, the Air Force's largest training installation, in fact, um, immediately had to deal with refugees, not foreign refugees, but refugees from Keesler Air Force Base, Mississippi, airmen that were displaced uh, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. 
And uh, part of our planning uh, in the aftermath of that event was the realization we had to be ready for this kind of event more frequently. And uh, then later at the Pentagon as the director of operational planning uh, in that job, uh, we began to formalize uh, direction to the field to start incorporated, incorporating climate-related planning into their war plans and into their operational planning process. So kind of became an up-close and personal uh, experience as a staff officer for me during that time. Uh, so, gentlemen, both of you are members of Citizens Climate Lobby, uh, and, and that tells me that you are both leaders who respect and value science and that you understand the importance of science-based public policy to address our shared challenges here in America. Uh, we should discuss the science of climate change, I think. I often hear people who say they don't, you know, quote-unquote, believe in climate change. And I'll tell you up front, I don't believe in climate change either. That's because climate science isn't a belief system. Uh, it's a science, and it's pretty much settled science at this point. Uh, and I think we should talk about that science. Bruce, I know that uh, you, you come from a very strong science background. Uh, can you give us a sort of a science-centric explanation of what climate change is and how it's warming the planet? And, and, and I know you, uh, and I, I know we could go on for an hour just on this, so I'm going to ask you to be brief and explain ex to, our, to our audience exactly how this works. Well, I can go real brief, as in it's getting hotter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I also have to agree with your statement. Um, when people ask me if I believe in climate change, I say, no, belief is an article of faith, but I have data. And so I don't have to believe in it. And in science, we know that truth is a probability or a p-value. But in any case, um, I'm to, the science for me starts in <clears throat> with the Milankovitch cycles, which were discovered and used to explain why glaciation occurs the way it does. And this was back in the mid-'70s. And some of the articles even suggested that we were, should be heading into a glaciation period where the Earth would be cooling because of the orbital mechanics of the way our orbit around the sun works and, and the way the orbits change over time. So uh, that was exciting to me because at the time I was a ballistics engineer, so I paid attention to that. And it made it very interesting then that it turns out that those cycles only worked for 800,000 years. And then to go to the current time, you had to change the model. And when I was running for uh, endorsement as a Republican, I drew these equations up on the board at the college. And I said, this is the system that explains glaciation for 800,000 years, but I have to add in anthropogenic greenhouse gases. I have to add in the industrial CO2 that comes from burning several hundred million years of sequestered carbon over a short 300-year time span. And I said, in that modification to the model then explains global warming as a issue because what it does is it explains why the co2 has gone up suddenly and the way it works is co2 is a greenhouse gas which means that light energy can come to the surface fairly easily but when it tries to get back out as long wave radiation as infrared as warmth the planet can't get enough energy back out because the co2 traps it so that's the greenhouse effect, uh, so to speak. And I was asked to explain this once to 800, I mean to 400 eighth graders. And I told that story about the equations. And I said, these equations are differential equations if you're a mathematician or a physicist. If you're an economist, they're a dynamics model. And at the end, the 
the best and only really the only question I got was this young kid who ran up and asked me if those were partial or ordinary differential <laughs> equations. <laughs> and I got to tell you, when I tell that story to teachers, they just melt. They just love that kid. And I loved him. I told him he's going to have a good life. So anyway, in essence, that's the story of global warming. It's a simple model. If you wanted, I could go through the history of it, going back to the late early 1800s, and we could talk about all the experiments that were done to confirm that this is what's happening. A lot of people don't realize that global warming was an issue. We knew that that was going to be a problem back in 1870s. Mm. So this is not a new thing. Science has known that this was happening. But uh, we'll we'll talk more about how that works. And, General, do you want to add anything to that uh, on the science side? Well, uh, I remember experiencing uh, the greenhouse effect in the cockpit of a C-5 uh, sitting on the ramp in Saudi Arabia as the sun was beating down on me, knowing that, uh, you know, when you live in a bubble uh, and gases get trapped, you get warm in a hurry. Uh, uh, That's probably the limit of my scientific (laughs) understanding. I was a political science major, not, not the other kind of science, but... You know, one thing that uh, I often tell folks is that in the military, uh, you just don't have the luxury of sitting around and debating uh, the science or the degree to which uh, humans cause climate change. You have to get busy planning for it Mm -hmm. and responding Mm -hmm. to it. And uh, certainly in terms of extreme weather events and the frequency of those events, the tracking of those and the military responses to those kind of uh, operations around the globe, we've seen a dramatic increase. Uh, Here in Asheville, North Carolina, there is a uh, squadron. Uh, In fact, it's the only active duty military unit in Western North Carolina called the 14th Weather Squadron. Their global mission is to uh, collect and exploit climate data for the U.S. military. And uh, you walk into that facility, talk to the men and women in uniform, as well as the civilian employees, you don't find any climate deniers in there, and you don't find any talk about politics. They'll show you the data, and they'll show you the queries they get from combatant commanders all around the world about the climate impacts in their theaters. So uh, they're busy planning, they're busy providing data, and they push the skepticism to the side in the interests of our national security. And, and on the science side, uh, Bruce, let, let me ask you this. So you mentioned uh, CO2, carbon dioxide. Uh, what about methane? What's the impact of methane? Methane is also a greenhouse gas, which means it's all these greenhouse gases. And by the way, the most pervasive greenhouse gas is water vapor. Yeah. But uh, methane is another byproduct of, of uh, biology, if you will. And there is a lot of methane in the atmosphere, but not as much as CO2. Methane is about 25 to 40 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas. So it's, it's very powerful. But the good news is it has a short half-life. It, dissip- it, it converts over to CO2 and, and other products fairly quickly in the atmosphere. Fairly quickly, meaning over the course of a decade or so. 
So because we've had a relatively stable climate for a long time now, we have uh, methane hydrates trapped uh, in the permafrost in the northern hemisphere? Well, there's two aspects of that. Methane hydrate is methane which is trapped in ice. In other words, basically the ice forms around the methane molecule, and it becomes this hydrate. Uh, And you can take a piece of methane hydrate and set it on fire. It looks like an ice cube, and you put a match to it, and it'll burn. And there's a lot of it under the ocean, and it's a concern because everybody is afraid that if the ocean gets too warm, suddenly all the methane will be released in kind of a a short time span, meaning maybe a thousand-year time span. Uh, It's not like it's going to bubble up automatically. The bigger problem might be the biological material in the permafrost, which is basically like the meat in your freezer. Mm. And it's just sitting there waiting for it. And if you unplug that freezer, it doesn't take long before the little bacteria take over. And that's what's going to happen there. So there's another source of methane that's going to come along if we warm things up too much. People talk about the methane monster and the methane catastrophe and all of that, but I don't think the timescales are right. I don't think you're going to see the kind. It's, it's, it's an example where if you can find a plausible mechanism, then you can make money off of it by selling fear. And I'm, <laughs> I'm afraid that there's a case where they're selling fear. So we stick to the science. We, we stick, stick to, to the, the science, science. Yeah. yes, exactly. Okay, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are retired U.S. Air Force Major General Rick Devereaux and retired U.S. Air Force Major Bruce Moreland, and we're talking about the nexus of climate change and national security. All right, gentlemen, we've covered the science of climate change, uh, how it works, and, and what is likely to happen if we continue to pump greenhouse gases into our thin atmosphere. Uh, we, we didn't get into the specifics of the degrees of warming. Uh, we maybe can talk a little bit about that as we talk about the impacts. Uh, I will say that the, the recent Blue Origins space launch that uh, sent William Shatner, uh, the famous James T. Kirk from the original Star Trek series, as a member of the crew, that Shatner reminded us when he got back to Earth after he saw himself, the Earth, from space, just how thin our atmosphere truly is. And he even commented about you know why we need to protect uh, that atmosphere to protect both ourselves and life on Earth. Uh, and maybe we should talk about the impacts of climate change. And General Devereaux, let me begin with you this time. As director of the U.S. Air Force's Operational Planning Policy and Strategy Office on the Air Force staff, which certainly put you into overall DOD strategic planning processes, what has the Pentagon been looking at with regard to threats to American national security from climate-related cha- uh, changes to our planet? Great question, uh, John. I'm, and I think one of the key uh, words there is, is related, climate-related. You know, it's, it's hard to come up with examples where climate or climate change was the only determinant of a threat or a national security response to a situation. But, but I like using the term of the climate change can be a, an accelerant of conflict or instability or kind of a threat multiplier because it's a key ingredient that can really uh, make a bad situation much worse. I mean, I think one of the most uh, highly uh, discussed examples was during the so-called Arab Spring in 2011, where we saw a lot of uh, sort of revolution, peoples uh, coming forward, wanting, uh, yearning for democracy, a lot of protests in Syria a lot of those protests were led by displaced farmers 
who were coming off of years of drought, couldn't produce crops, a lot of economic uh, instability, and that was really the underlying fuel for those protests that uh, led to the the Assad regime buckling down and ensuing conflict and civil war, uh, which the United States is still uh, to a a degree participating in. So there's an example, but there's a lot of you know, when you talk about uh, conflicts centered around access to water, uh, water basins in South Asia, in the uh, Mekong River uh, area, uh, in the Mideast, in North Africa, these are shared resources. And anytime you experience drought or uh, conditions of uh, decreased availability of water, you're going to see the potential for conflict. And that's what the Pentagon planners are incorporating uh, into their thought processes and into their uh, into their planning processes. In fact, uh, uh, the the current administration has formalized that uh, just a few months ago. President Biden signed an executive order uh, which elevates climate considerations to be, and I'll quote, an essential element of United States foreign policy and national security. And, uh, you know, there's many, many examples. I mean, think about the, the crisis is at our southern border during the last administration when we had a lot of Honduran, Guatemalan, El Salvadoran refugees, you know, and, and so one of the talking points was, well, they're coming because they think uh, America's immigration policy is too lax, is lax, and the borders are porous. <laughs> well, there were back-to-back hurricanes in uh, in Honduras and El Salvador about a year ago. Uh, Hurricanes Eta and Iota displaced uh, 5.3 million people. Uh, half the crops were lost in those Central American states and right in the midst of a pandemic. So that one-two punch was a big driver of that migration, those convoys that we saw. And uh, so it's a good example, I think, of how climate change, back-to-back Cat 5 hurricanes are not coincidence. Uh, that can be a real driver for instability and require a response uh, from our military. Uh, Bruce, any, any thoughts from you on this? Um, not, not, I, I just wanted to add that uh, the Arab Spring actually was part of the cause of that they think was uh, simultaneous wheat failures in both China and the Ukraine and they both couldn't export wheat at a time when the Middle East needed an import all all I think it's uh Syria's one was one of the major importers of wheat but that that was a climate change event the the climate had changed the crops had failed and you get a problem in a, in a different part of the world, and and that kind of relates to how connected we all are. The uh, immigration, the, the you you see the massive refugees showing up at the U.S. border from Guatemala and Nicaragua, as the general said. Uh, you also see the same problem in Europe. Uh, Turkey is right at the bleeding edge of where they show up. They show up in Greece and Italy, and we see the stories all the time. People are swimming, practically swimming across the Mediterranean to try and get away from. Yeah from the climate that's that's changing under their feet and over their heads. It's not a good time. 
Yeah, I actually pulled uh, some some statements out of uh, some of the many climate-related reports that are coming out of uh, Pentagon, the intelligence community, others. Uh, extreme weather. Here's a here's a great statement. Extreme weather events and conflict are the top two drivers of forced displacement globally. Uh, together, responsible for the annual movement annual movement of nearly 30 million people from their homes. And there's a strong correlation between countries and regions most vulnerable to climate change and those that are fragile and or experiencing conflict or violence. Uh, and uh, they go on to say that, that and you, you said this, General, that water availability is a critical driver of these things. Uh, some other comments uh, here, in, here in the Star Tribune, uh, we have a, an author, a writer, John Rash, who uh, uh, regularly comments on national security issues. And one of the quotes from one of his articles is that there are, there are two other worlds uh, that have always been paying attention to climate change. One is the insurance companies, <laughs> and the other is the military. And from an insurance company perspective, uh, each year when we suffer these major storms or these fires out in the West, you're talking about billions of dollars in costs to the American people, to the insurance companies, et cetera. So there's a huge economic uh, challenge here that's also associated with the national security challenges that uh, that we're dealing with already. I'm going to interject here. Yes, uh, insurance companies actually make bets based on climate. <laughs> so they're putting money on the table. They're not going to pay attention to the politics. They're going to pay attention to the math. And I, uh, I'm i actually a member of the USAA, which is a military uh, insurance company. Uh, it sells a lot of insurance to military members. And they sent us a letter that said that their costs were going up, and would we please stop building on the beaches in Florida? <laughs> <laughs> General Dever, I bet you're also a USAA member. I sure am. Uh, yeah, for I can't remember how many years, for a long time. But, you know, I'll point out, too, uh, you know, it's when we talk about water availability, it's not just uh, water scarcity, but, uh, but things like uh, ice melt mm -hmm. in the Arctic. Uh, you know, that, that the rate of ice melt has increased dramatically. Uh, and in fact, the science predicts that the, that ice melt will proceed at twice the rate in the Arctic as in other parts of the globe. So what's happening as a result? More commerce, more shipping is moving through that area. Russia is looking at more uh, opportunities to exploit its uh, northern trade route. And so the U.S. Navy is involved now with increased patrols, as is the Coast Guard, as is the Air Force. We just signed an agreement with Norway for some basing access. Uh, and so with that sort of melting, you see increased competition for resources, including fossil fuels, the potential for conflict and instability. So uh, in U.S. Uh, has what? Two or three icebreakers, I think. One. Uh, we have one, to, yeah, one, one functioning yeah. icebreaker. Uh, one icebreaker. Yeah. Russia has fifty-five. Yeah. So uh, uh, this is an area that we're we're going to have to dedicate some resources to. Yeah. When I was doing force structure analysis, I was analyzing ballistic missiles against the Soviet threat to try and design forces that were twenty or thirty years out. Right. We're going to deploy all these things. And the Navy now has to think about a three-ocean war. That's true. That is true. As a naval officer, I can tell you that that is very true. <laughs> uh, so, gentlemen, let's move on. Uh, I, I think all three of us recognize the importance of learning from history. Uh, the Greek historian Thucydides teaches us that how we treat our allies and friends matters. And, in fact, it matters greatly. 
Uh, and in that case, Athens held much greater overall power and had many more allies in the city-states of the Aegean Sea than did Sparta during the Peloponnesian War. But Athens ignored her allies and, and really abused them in many regards, and once weakened, her allies abandoned Athens to Spartan retribution. So that said, when the rest of the world is embracing the reality of climate change, and we just had COP26 in, in uh, Glasgow, uh, Scotland, and the rest of the world has been seeking a global leader to help all nations to unite to tackle climate change in a comprehensive manner, uh, what role should the U.S. be playing? I mean, if we abandon our role as a global leader, which we've held since the end of World War II, uh, frankly, to very positive effect around the world, who will fill the leadership void? Is it going to be China? Is that, is that what we want to see happen? Uh, China becoming the de facto global leader guiding other nations towards combating climate change. And I, w- I would just suggest uh, there's some other things that are happening in DOD that, that sort of add to this conversation. Uh, the climate, uh, I mean, the, uh, the policy department at DOD is adding in a climate policy czar uh, to try and bring in these aspects of climate change into DOD planning. And some of the defense strategists have been commenting on this that China is already gaining influence and strategic advantage through its response to climate change impacts outside its borders. Uh, Beijing is attempting to build soft power in countries threatened by climate hazards. As a great example of that, in 2019, the Solomon Islands and Kiribati both cited support from China for tackling climate risks as reasons they had strengthened their relationship with Beijing. So there's some some very serious uh, applications of the tools of national power, soft power on the part of Beijing. Uh, are, are we prepared to become irrelevant in global leadership by ceding this space to China? Uh, maybe, General Deverell, let's start with you. Uh, you. You worked on these big policy issues, these strategic challenges at the Pentagon. Uh, what, what's the way forward on this? I think this is a great question. I think the topic of leadership is so, so important when you talk about climate change and uh, national security. I mean, we saw an example of that when our country withdrew from the uh, Paris Climate Accords. And regardless, I think there's reasonable arguments to be made on both sides about, you know, uh, the role of emissions and uh, are you doing your fair share as a country and, and all the finger pointing that goes with that. But once you leave the forum, you cede the possibility of leadership and influence. And, uh, and uh, leadership will be is a vacuum that will be filled. And China has really stepped up in this area, and it's one of my big areas of concern. And uh, you know, I think I think we're in the midst of a potential uh, renewable energy technology arms race, if you will, our green arms race. And uh, China is way out front. They are the largest employer of solar wind and hydro generation. They're responsible for adding about a half of the world's new renewable energy each year. They produce 70% of the world's solar panels. The U.S. produces 1%. China produces one-third of the wind power in the world. Six of the top uh, wind turbine companies are Chinese companies. They lead the world in electric vehicle manufacturing, building over half of the world's EVs every year. That's, by the way, subsidized heavily by state funds. They produce the bulk of durable magnets found in electric vehicle motors. 
and uh, the assembly process of those motors. I mean, bottom line is you cannot make an electric vehicle today without Chinese help and Chinese technology. And they produce about 77% of the world's lithium batteries, uh, lithium ion batteries. I could go on and on and on. But and it's not just the technology and the manufacturing, it's the influence. Through China's what they call the Belt and Road Initiative, which you can think of as sort of this the Silk Road of the 21st century, they're using uh, uh, that sort of trade scheme, access to minerals, providing technology, providing renewable energy products as a way to leverage relationships with future partners around the world, a role that the U.S., uh, you know, enjoyed for decades. So are we willing as a country to see that kind of leadership uh, to China? I think that's a question on the table. And, and Bruce, what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I just wanted to add a couple of thoughts on uh, whether we can afford to let China take the lead uh, we know that China is a very oppressive regime. We know what they're doing to the Uyghurs, that they are, you know, their one-child policy was more about eliminating the Uyghurs than it was eliminating the Chinese. And uh, the, we know that they are completely disrespectful of the environment in other people's countries. Uh, I don't know. Here in Minnesota, we have a big to-do about some copper-nickel mining up north. Mm-hmm. But I can guarantee you that if you go and see what the Chinese do to get at the minerals that they oh, yeah. need, yeah. it's just outrageous. And if we don't stand up to them, they will continue those kinds of policies throughout the third world. The other thing that we might give us leverage is if we can educate, but it's hard to do this, uh, that when they come in and build things, they build it with their workers right. using their materials, and then they own it. And if the country can't pay off the debt, then they just take it. Yeah, and a lot of that building, uh, this is their their version of uh, some of the foreign policy that we exercised in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah. Uh, the difference is we would do our work in foreign countries pretty much for free as an aid uh, to those, those developing uh, nations at the time. Uh, the Chinese go in and they will offer to build these infrastructure projects in exchange for access to natural resources at, at, at high interest yeah. rates as well for some yep. of the projects that they do. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very interesting uh, dynamic uh, different between how we used to do things and how the Chinese do today. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are retired U.S. Air Force Major General Rick Devereaux and retired U.S. Air Force Major Bruce Morland. And we're talking about the nexus of climate change and national security. So, gentlemen, we've, we've learned about the science of climate change. We've looked at the increasing instability factors that impact nations on our planet. And we've considered America's role in leading change across the planet to effectively combat climate change. Uh, let's take a, a look at the direct impact to American national security if we don't act. Uh, where, what near-term challenges are we facing in DOD related to climate change? Uh, and, and Bruce, uh, why don't you kick this one off, and John Deborah, I'll, I'll let you finish off on this topic. Okay, well, I just wanted to make a couple comments here. Um, uh, the general has very nicely laid the foundation for this comment. <laughs> uh, politicians have been blocking our ability to plan for climate change for years, and it's a, become a political football. It's one of the reasons I'm in Citizens Climate Lobby. It's one of the reasons I work with Braver Angels, trying to break that logjam. 
uh, an example, which I, I warned the general about this since he lives there. Uh, a 2012 law in North Carolina would, would ban the state from basing coastal policies on the latest scientific predictions of how much the sea level will rise. In other words, we don't like climate change, so we'll just outlaw thinking about it. That's a politician's <laughs> response. And I have to say that uh, having been a planner myself, or at least supporting the planning staff, I know that the military has a long history of doing contingency planning against real threats, not imaginary threats. And so it's, it's a case of the Department of Defense has gotten a chance to push back on this and have new guidance and has always had guidance that we have to pay attention to what the future threats are. That's part of our job. And I think the National Intelligence Estimate just came out. That's right. And had some facts about and information about extreme weather being something that we have to be prepared for. And as the general said, an amazing amount of our force is used in humanitarian relief. And yeah. that's just going to get worse as we get longer, further along. We know that there are some direct climate effects to military bases. Uh, we lost. We had trouble when hurricanes hit an Air Force base, and they couldn't get all the planes out. Right. So they had a lot of hangar queens sitting down there, and when the hangars went away, so did the hangar queen. A hangar queen, by the way, is an airplane that sits in a hangar, so you've got spare parts for the ones that are doing the real flying. Or I, at least that's my understanding. Remember, I was a key turner, not a flyer. <laughs> and and then you've got the instability in the rest of the world, which is all going to create. I mean, look what's happening in the Middle East. Look what's happening in Southeast Asia. All these places that are on the f bleeding edge of the fight uh, against climate change. So that's my thoughts. Yeah. And and General, how about you? Near term challenges for DoD related to climate change. I think I think this area in the near term is the. Uh, the biggest challenge for DOD, and that's sort of shoring up its installations. You know, we're seeing uh, sea level rise threaten our coastal bases in the Tidewater area of Virginia, uh, hurricanes in uh, the panhandle of Florida, and my own state of North Carolina that have uh, done billions of dollars of damage, of, uh, you know, $10 billion of damage between two bases. Off at Air Force Base, Nebraska, Nebraska had SAC headquarters, uh, landlocked uh, area yet experienced flooding that uh, submerged half the runway uh, and uh, created about $3 billion worth of damage. Um, wildfires, droughts that are threatening many of our installations. So I think the, the real challenge is besides making these bases more resilient, we're going to have some political questions about which bases may need to decrease their mission or move forces to a, a more climate resilient base. Uh, if we're not willing to make those hard choices, we're going to spend more funds in the Department of Defense on bases, which means less funds for combat power. So uh, these are some politically <clears throat> difficult choices that require acknowledgement that the climate change impacts are very real and have to be dealt with pretty quickly. Yeah, and I would just say that uh, as a Navy guy, because, you know, the Navy is the most important service, uh, <laughs> when we talk about uh, climate uh, climate change and, and uh, the melting uh, of uh, the glaciers and, and some of the ice caps on, on places like Iceland and, and Greenland and whatnot, sea level rise. 
So Norfolk Naval Base is the largest naval base in the world. It's an incredibly important naval base for the U.S. Navy, and they are already suffering from constant flooding. Uh, even the Naval Academy, uh, where I graduated from, is suffering from flooding on a routine basis uh, right there on the campus ground. So this discussion that you just had for us, uh, General Devereaux, about uh, the increasing threats to our infrastructure, our installations around the country and around the world, that's a, that's a very expensive uh, challenge to deal with if we don't try to mitigate some of these uh, climate change impacts. Uh, so, gentlemen, let's talk about that mitigation a little bit. Uh, we're, we're starting to close in towards the end of our show. Uh, so mitigation of climate change, uh, maybe even reversing climate change a little bit. You are both members of Citizens Climate Lobby, or, or CCL. What solutions does CCL endorse? And, and I should highlight here, Bruce, you said you're the chair of the Conservative Caucus of CCL in, in the Northfield <laughs> chapter, and that CCL is, in fact, a bipartisan uh, or even nonpartisan group of citizens who understand the climate science and are advocating for policy changes in Congress. Uh, gentlemen, what are the optimal solutions for dealing with climate change? And General Devereaux, I'll, I'll ask you to kick this one off. Well, uh, thank you, John. Uh, citizens Climate Lobbying is, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a group of uh, citizens that are interested in uh, climate change and its impacts. And they have proposed a solution which is very simple. It's called a carbon fee and dividend. And essentially, this solution recognizes that, as we've been discussing here today, you put carbon into the atmosphere at an increased rate, it's going to change the planet, and it's not going to be a good change. So the problem with just letting the free market itself deal with this issue is that there's no price on carbon. There's no cost to putting that pollutant into the atmosphere. So CCL proposes a carbon price, which means those that mine uh, or uh, with wells or extract carbon from the earth uh, put, a, put a price on it, uh, pay a, a cost. So initially $15 a ton, growing $10 per ton per year. The vast majority majority of economists around the world uh, support this approach, a carbon price, building into the, a price on carbon, and then the or call it a tax, if you will, and then the government would take that tax and not decide what to do with it, but instead distribute it to families all across the country equally. Uh, so revenue neutral. It uh, does raise prices in fossil fuel-related products, but the dividends that, that's distributed to families will allow 95% of families that are in the bottom 60%, if you will, income in our country to make money on this proposition. They'll actually get more dividend. They'll experience in price increases. And the beauty of this approach is it doesn't rely on regulation or tariffs or incentives or complex tax schemes. It just simply lets the free market uh, move towards renewable energy uh, and it allows companies and businesses to plan for the future. So that's, that's the carbon fee and dividend approach that we've been promoting. So we're talking about the using capitalism to, to combat climate change. Bruce, what do you have to add on that? Well, I just want to say that's the beauty of the carbon fee and dividend is that it, it allows market forces to make the choices. So we don't have 
the government picking winners and losers and sometimes making a government level. I mean, you know, they say that to err is human, but to really mess things up <laughs> takes a political system. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a great plan for that. It's simple. It, you only have to actually talk to about 1,200 people or companies to get those checks coming in. The dividend goes back out without a means test. It goes to everybody, and as the general said, the bottom half to 60% of the population actually gets more money in that dividend than they spend on the increased costs. But for those of us who are old enough to remember the 70s, and I was buying cars in the 70s, and I remember all of a sudden I could buy a Pinto or a Vega or a Gremlin, all these little cars, because the price of gas went through the roof. And that's an example of how market forces drove consumption in a way that you, you couldn't mandate that. You can't conceive of a plan to mandate that. So it's, it's really good. Uh, as the general said, it's endorsed by almost every economist. They all love this idea. Uh, it's good. For, it's a, we joke sometimes, and I hope I can say this, we joke in the conservative caucus that it's really nice that we've got so many non-conservatives willing to help us pass this conservative-friendly <laughs> law. You know, it's really very, very, very nice for that. And it goes back to the freedom and the free market and the ability to make choices and let people make their choices. So it sounds to me like that dividend uh, being injected uh, into the economy through uh, uh, through families, allowing them to spend that money on the economy is a, is a boost to, the, to economic growth as well. I think, uh, and the general might be able to correct me if I'm wrong, I think it creates 2.8 million new jobs over 10 years or something wow. like that. It's just, it creates jobs, it gives people, I mean, because that's one thing the poor are good at, and I know because I'm one of them <laughs> in some ways, is we spend the money when we get it. Yeah. And we'll, we'll buy more health care, we'll buy more, you know, we might buy better windows, we might buy a smaller car. Lots of things we will make, we will make choices with that dividend check that will echo through the whole market yeah. and drive us toward that carbon-free future that we need. General, could you comment a little bit about you know, how, we, how we deal with that, uh, the border adjustments? Because I'm sure that all the other countries in the world are talking about how to implement some sort of system just like this. Right. Yeah, a lot of people ask that because they go, well, what about what we import? You know, how is that going to be uh, introduced into the scheme? Well, the good news is for developed economies, the United States and Australia are the only two that don't already have a carbon tax, carbon pricing built into their structure. But for those countries that do not, if they export uh, fossil fuel products to the United States, there'll be a carbon tax imposed at the border. Call it a tariff, if you like. But that will, uh, again, allow the same free market forces that we've been talking about to be global free market forces uh, so that uh, you won't have a, a winner or a loser because of uh, someone not doing the carbon tax as part of this. Um, you know, it's, and, you know the, the other thing I'll add is business does not like an uncertainty. Right. <laughs> you know, the stock market goes down when there's uncertainty. Whether you're an energy company or you're a retail firm, what you like about this carbon pricing, a carbon fee, is that you can plan now. You know now what your products are going to cost. You know what the impacts will be, and you can begin planning for the future with some certainty. That's what I think our economy uh, will most benefit from. 
And actually, some oil companies asked for a carbon fee because they preferred the certainty of a simple solution over the uncertainty of a regulatory approach. Mm. That was a couple of years ago, and I think it was European companies that did that. Okay. So, gentlemen, the three of us are all retired military officers, and I think one thing that is generally true of most military veterans is that we are trained and remain committed to the thoughtful, facts-based approaches to solving challenges. Uh, and that our approach generally resolves to find solutions that do the greatest good for the greatest number of people at the least cost with the minimum negative impacts. Is that a true statement? Uh, would you both agree with me on that? For sure. Yep. Absolutely. So what do you want listeners to know about the debate over taking action on climate change? You're both fact-based decision makers. What is the public missing in this discussion? And Bruce, let's start with you. General, I'll give you the last word on this one. Well, there's a re. First of all, I have to correct something. I'm I was <laughs> I was chair of the Conservative Caucus, but oh. I gave that up about a year ago okay. to become co-chair of the Braver Angels Action Team. Okay, and that's because, and this is leads into. I think what the public doesn't understand is that much of their fear, uncertainty, and doubt, FUD, is driven not by truths but by politics, mm. and the political parties are making hay off of their fear and uncertainty. And so you have to, I mean, there's a lot of news now about social media kind of messing things up. And you just have to remember that a lot of the argument that you're hearing about climate change is driven more by politics than it is by science. In fact, it's all being driven. I, when I gave my talk and I said, this is global warming, I was very deliberate about using global warming mm -hmm. because global warming is the core problem. Climate change is how it ex presents itself, and politics takes advantage of that little step to make everything uncertain. So my warning to the people is pay attention to those politicians because they're not necessarily helping. <laughs> right. And General Devereaux. Uh, one thing I'd like to share is that, uh, that a lot of people don't realize is the military is moving in this direction towards clean energy technologies, renewable sources, not because they're necessarily just interested in being good stewards on the planet, but because this technology makes sense from a military perspective operationally. For instance, when you're dependent on fuel pipelines, on convoys of fuel trucks in places like Afghanistan that lead to casualties, you quickly realize the benefits of setting up a solar array or a small-scale wind farm. Or if your base in the United States in Texas is vulnerable to a grid failure from coal-fired power plants in the state or gas power plants, <laughs> you quickly produce a microgrid on your own installation fueled by the sun and wind, or perhaps biodiesel. So the military is moving in this direction because it makes sense. It's more militarily effective. And I think that's the beauty of, uh, of this topic, is you can still be a climate change skeptic. You can debate the significance of climate change, but you cannot deny that the world is moving rapidly towards renewable sources and the U.S. has the opportunity to either be a leader, be out front, to help influence the way that uh, moves for our economy and for our citizens, or we can pl be playing catch-up. And I, don't, I think most Americans would say, let's not play catch-up. Let's be out front. That's what, where we're comfortable in terms of leading. 
And General Devereaux, I'll I'll, uh, I'll reiterate something you just said, where you talked about the military and our really our logistics uh, train uh, to support our operations. Back in around 2005, when I was on the Navy staff at the Pentagon, uh, there was a a discussion one night uh, off campus there, just off the over in Crystal City, uh, from somebody from the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is which is an organization that has concentrated on, on clean energy options since the 70s, and there were about 100 people from the Pentagon in that room listening to that discussion that night. And as I sort of listened to the questions that were being answered, almost everybody that was there was on the logistics side of operations at the Pentagon from all the different services. And there were some folks from some of the uh, committees uh, in both the House and the Senate there listening to these discussions, talking about the cost and, uh, and the dangers of these supply lines that we had in places like Iraq at the time where our convoys were coming under attack and we were losing access to the fuel we needed to support operations in Afghanistan or in, in, in Iraq at the time. So uh, that, is, that is spot on, General. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, last question for you both. Uh, if, if you were going to point listeners to information that they could read or, or even watch on their own to come to their own conclusions on the best path forward for America regarding climate change, uh, and our national security uh, needs. What resources would you recommend? Uh, General Devereaux, I'll start with you. Well, I've got a few that I'd recommend. One is I, I'm a sort of devoted reader of a, a magazine called The Economist. Yeah. <laughs> it's a generally conservative publication. Yeah. It's apolitical. And every week they have a, an article about climate change, its impacts, and their solutions, which are kind of revolve around many of the points we've been discussing today. Another one is Google uh, uh, Department of Ten- Defense and Climate Change, and you'll find a, a plethora of reports, some of which were released last week about the impact of climate change on national security. The Center for Climate and National Security, the Center for Climate and National Security, great website with great resources, and the American Security Project is another one to uh to Google up. They also have some great articles. And of course, we've been promoting Citizens Climate Lobby a little bit, CCL. Uh, uh, again, a great bipartisan solution uh, uh, being proposed to the problem we've been discussing today. And Bruce Marlin, any uh, any resources that you look to on a regular basis? I look to Citizens Climate Lobby, as the general mentioned, and I read The Economist, of course. <laughs> I also, though, being a good intel type, read The Atlantic and The New Yorker, neither of which is a right-wing source, but it's useful to see how it's being talked about in those environments. Uh, There are also some really interesting, there are some movies out there that kind of focus on this, including the movie The Burden. I I happened to get to, I was in Omaha during that flooding that you mentioned, (laughs) trying to talk about climate change on a panel after we uh, showed that movie. So you could watch that. Um, And in general, I would say look at Braver Angels to learn more about how to communicate across the divide because at some point this has to be a bipartisan solution. Uh, If we don't get both sides playing in this game, then the solutions will only last until the next election. And that is the critical thing that we've learned is that you cannot cannot win a 51% because as soon as you do... You pass your policies, and then four years later, somebody else is in there with their fifty-one percent, and it's a whipsaw. Yeah. And I, you know, I I so agree with that, uh, Bruce. And if I could 
just emphasize climate and national security is a perfect way to bring that divide together, right? Because traditionally, people that are interested in national security and supporting our military, maybe they lean a little bit to the right. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some climate skeptics in that group. Uh, people that are in, interested in climate change, maybe they're not as interested traditionally in national security. This is a way to bring those groups together and find common ground. And we so desperately need that uh, in our country right now. Absolutely. I'm guessing that most of our listeners know a veteran. I'm guessing not as many know insurance agents. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, go to your veterans. Bring them into the game. So, uh, gentlemen, uh, thank you both. Uh, we've come to the end of another edition of uh, National Security This Week. Uh, Major General Rick Devereaux and Major Bruce Moreland, thank you both so much for taking time from your busy schedules to share your insights into the nexus of climate change and national security. I, I learned quite a bit today. I expect many of our listeners uh, also benefited uh, from your expertise. Uh, before we finish today, I, I just want to tell our audience uh, about a series that's running right now on, on PBS. Uh, the series is called American Veteran. Uh, and a few weeks ago, we did a show on civil-military relations, and our guest was uh, Professor Ron Krebs from the University of Minnesota. If you're interested in learning more about why people join the military, how military service affects people, and I think uh, General Devereaux and, uh, and Bruce Moreland and I are, are great examples of that, uh, what it's like to serve overseas in a combat zone, those kinds of things, I strongly recommend you take the time to watch the series. And again, that's American Veteran on PBS. Uh, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We'd love your feedback here at National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, so please take a few minutes to contact us and let us know how we're doing. Have a fantastic week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.